0: Welcome to the ARRIVE podcast, the U.S. immigration podcast for Canadians. Uh, Today we will be discussing what is called adjustment of status. And that is when somebody has entered the United States legally and they want to stay permanently in the U.S. They want to make the United States their home now and their permanent residence. And specifically, we will be talking about... uh, the spouse of a U.S. citizen coming here, you're married to a U.S. citizen, or you come and you get married to a U.S. citizen after entry to the U.S., and you want to stay here permanently, as well as employees. Maybe you came and and you're working on a TN visa and your employer sponsored you for a green card to stay here permanently in the United States. The process of going from that that non-immigrant visa, a non-immigrant visa is one that where the intent is just to come for a temporary reason, to a permanent visa, or in this case, a green card, that allows you to stay here on a permanent basis. The process of doing that is what is referred to as adjustment of status. You're requesting the U.S. government to allow you to stay here permanently. And eventually that can lead to citizenship. And people get that confused a lot. I I had an individual actually get upset on the phone the other day and he was mad because um, he wanted his wife to get citizenship. And I said, well, she can get citizenship. It's a process. First, she has to get a green card. Then after having her green card, and if you're married to a U.S. citizen, that's faster. But after having your green card for three years, then you can she can apply for citizenship. No, I just wanted her to have citizenship. I thought she could just get citizenship. Nope, doesn't work that way. You have to get permanent residence first. After you've been a permanent resident, for the, if it's through marriage, three years, if it's through employment, five years, then you can apply for citizenship, but you have to have permanent residence first. So that is the step that we're talking about. How do you get that green card that will eventually lead to citizenship? And that's what a lot of people call and ask is, hey, I want to permanently move to the U.S. I want to become a U.S. citizen. What do I need to do? Well, this is the actually the second step the first step right. is getting here legally and <laughs> a legal uh non-immigrant visa but it's the first major step in becoming u.s citizen is this adjustment of status process getting this green card and we see this a lot especially this time of the year um with cross-border couples there are a lot of cross-border relationships between the canada be, between the canada <laughs> between canada and the united states um he, we're, right here we're recording this podcast we can look out our window and we see that's fort erie canada right across the way and yep. crystal beach right up there yeah nice beach it's fun to go to um but there are a lot of relationships between canadians and u.s citizens because of the proximity of the border and in, in this northern border um so we deal with that a lot and people coming to the u.s and they they want to stay here permanently either they've been married for a long time, and maybe it's a transition in their life to to a different period, maybe retirement, and they want to make the U.S. their residence now, uh, or they're newlywed couples, uh, and nobody, I don't think people enjoy long-distance relationships, especially after marriage. Yeah, and to I mean, really even when they're together. not
1: long-distance, so I had a call last week from a couple um and one of them's living in niagara falls new york and one is living in niagara falls ontario and they literally can see each other's houses across the river um but it's you know considered a long distance relationship because you have to cross the border every time you see each other and you know there's no guarantees that you're going to be admitted every single time so um when they decide at that and then COVID point, hits yeah. Then COVID hits and changes everything for everybody. may not be able to see each other for a while. Right. And so, so they've decided they want to make their home in the United States. They're recently married and now we're going through the process to get, um, the Canadian spouse, their permanent residence in the U S so they won't have any problems traveling across the border. And their intention is to live permanently in the U S.
0: Yeah. And in another situation we see a lot too is, is individuals that are here working, uh, and they've come to the point where they've decided that they want to make the United States their their permanent residence and their employers sponsor them uh, through the process to get a green card as well. So those are probably the most common situations that we see, either through relationship to a U.S. citizen or through employment. And and we also run into, um, you know, children that have become U.S. citizens that sponsor their parents or Mm -hmm. a parent bringing over a child who's not a U.S. citizen. So That all works out as well. Um, But in this case, we're talking about those that are here legally on visas in the United States or Canadians that are visa exempt that have entered as Canadian visitors and they have a method to become a permanent resident through what's called adjustment of status. So there's there's a couple steps to this process to transition from that non immigrant visa over to a green card or permanent residence here in the U.S. If you are sponsoring a spouse, the U.S. citizen spouse will file what's called a petition for alien relative. And that's through a form called Form I-130 with USCIS. And what the Form I-130 does or this petition does is it validates the relationship. That's the sole purpose of this, this filing is to validate the legitimacy of the relationship. You file it with the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services with supporting evidence to show, for example, if it's your spouse, that it's what they call a bona fide relationship or a real relationship, one that's entered into for love and not for simply immigration benefits. So it has to be adequately supported with evidence showing that that you are, in fact, a married couple. And if you've been married longer... Typically easier to show yeah, that right. because you have years of evidence or children or children. <laughs> ding 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 ding. <laughs> if you have children, uh, that that makes these cases much easier. USCIS or immigration looks looks kindly upon couples who have children. Um, but if you haven't been married very long, uh, just got married, then it might be a little bit more difficult. to Yeah, for if you, you haven't prove.
1: merged your lives yet, sometimes it's more difficult to prove that it's a bona fide relationship. So. Um, you know, there's certain kind of financial evidence they look for that they really like. Um, you know, you can give pictures and things like that, but sometimes it's just not enough. So you got to work on collecting that evidence to make the case stronger.
0: Yeah. And when, you, when you're young, married couple, typically you're not going to have children. Like you said, you're not going to have joint finances yet or if you do, you have a month of bank statements or something, you yeah. know, really short term, maybe you don't even have a joint lease yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have photos together. You have, you know, taken vacations, you know, you can prove that you dated and, and developed this relationship. But a lot of that evidence that the government likes to see is developed over time. Now, if it is a new relationship, they, they do, you know, apply some discretion in that regard. But you still need to prove it. You still need to show evidence that you are, in fact, married.
1: Right. You <laughs> and, can't just file this with just the marriage certificate and say, well, that's proof enough. We're married. There it is.
0: And you would be surprised at how many people say, this is my wife or this is my husband and or, or this is my spouse. Look, here's my marriage certificate. We're legitimate. What else do they need? And, <laughs> and that may have been
1: sufficient lot. back you know, 20, 30 years ago, but it isn't anymore. It Um, was.
0: I had a client who told me they just walked in and we had to actually redo this this couple's green card because they moved to Canada for like 30 or 40 years after they'd lived in the U.S. So he gave up his green card and had to reapply again. The first time he got it, he literally walked here in Buffalo. He said they just walked in with their marriage certificate together. They printed the green card in the back and they walked away. It was that (laughs) easy. Well...
1: If only that were the case today. Not anymore.
0: Um, You have to go through this whole petition process. Uh, So that is... So you have to file that petition for a relative. If it's an employer, it's a different process. And we're not going to get into the weeds on that. But essentially, the employer an employer has various different methods by which they can petition an employee and show that they have a need for this employee to be here permanently in the US and that's through a different form called uh, a petition for foreign worker or or form I-140 so you have to have one of these approved in order to then take the next step to adjust status in the United States either through employment or through a uh, Family tie to a U.S. citizen.
1: The good thing is for Canadians, in most cases, you can file these together. So you can file it as a one step application. So even though you need two steps approved, you can file them all at the same time. Um, And that's very common too, especially with the married couples and family members filing um, the form I 130 with the adjustment of status application all at once.
0: Yes. And then so, and that's the second application is the adjustment status of the 485. So the I-130 or the I-140 is filed by the petitioner, the U.S. citizen or the U.S. employer. Mm-hmm. The second application, the 485, is filed by the, the foreign, applicant. foreign national. So the person being petitioned files the 485. And the, what the 485 essentially is, is an overview of the individual's background and their what they call admissibility to the United States. They're vetting you to make sure that you don't have a past, a history, or a tendency that would uh be harmful to the United States or to others. Um so that's what the four eight five is. That's filed by the foreign national or the foreign relative. And then the I 140 or I 130 is filed by uh the, either the spouse or the employer and, and like you said you can file these concurrently or together yep. at the same time uh and if you in do a that lot of cases you can. yeah like most an, of the time yeah in employment cases you see sometimes you don't mm-hmm. uh but almost every uh, and, almost and every family t- case some, you do
1: well certain family members you can't right so if it's permanent residence yeah. so it depends on the wait time right, right for brothers and sisters you can't for yeah there's a wait time for those so you can't file them together or if it's but a mother spouse, father
0: spouse, or a minor child, minor child of a U.S. Yep. citizen, there is no wait time. So those cases, you, you file those together right away. Um, along with the evidence to prove that this relationship is valid, or along with the evidence that the employee, if you're sponsoring an employee, has the qualifications.
1: Right. So when you file at once, you're requesting that the government approve your relationship and say, yep, this is a legitimate marriage, a legitimate you know, relationship. And you're also asking them to approve your change of status from visitor or whatever it was, TN visa, to permanent resident. So it's it's a two step that's all filed together as a one step application.
0: Yes. And then along with that, there's some other things that are filed, right? Yep. <laughs> you're not just filing for that's the main thing you want. The main thing you want is the green card in right. the end, but then there's a there's a couple components. One of them is affidavit support. Right. What is the affidavit mm-hmm. support? Well financial support. So they want to make sure that people that are coming to the United States aren't going to be destitute when they get here, that they're not going to live off the U S government. So there's a form that has to be filed along with the application to prove that the, the sponsor or the petitioner has the sufficient financial means to support the person that's coming. And that's coming
1: actually, over. that form is a contract between the federal government and the petitioner, which puts a petitioner on hook to for how long for it depends. And Depends. it could be until the death of, the, uh, you know, it's, it's for pretty much until they are self-sufficient. So until they have 40 work quarters or 10 years of work history in the United States, citizen. or they die, it does not, you know, that obligation does not end by divorce either. So if that relationship ends, that financial obligation still stays in place. It's a pretty, um, you know, concrete contract between the petitioner and the federal government.
0: And we get those questions a lot. So affidavit support... Is a contract mm-hmm. with the U.S. government f- between the petitioner and the U.S. government. So, like you said, you get divorced, this contract stays in effect. It does not go away just because you got divorced. It can terminate if, you know... The citizenship, sp- if the... Citizenship, right? death, 10 years or 40 quarters... Right. Those or the if
1: they if you get divorced and they remarry someone else who petitions them, then I think it ends it as well.
0: Or they depart the United States. Oh, yeah. And they, they abandon leave. their status. Yes. But in most cases, if if you, they come and they stay here, well, you could be on the hook for 10 years as a sponsor, even through divorce. Um, and this comes into play. You know, if it's a legitimate relationship, um, you know, most of the time you don't have anything to worry about. Um, you know, you're going to sponsor your spouse and you're going to support your spouse. Right um but in some situations the sponsor doesn't have sufficient financial means and mm-hmm. in that case they would get a joint sponsor uh, and that can be any US citizen or US permanent resident that can be a step in as a financial joint sponsor to make up the difference in income or to use their assets or income as evidence that you know the the person being sponsored. And that means the federal government
1: insurance. has two pe- two people on the hook now. So it has the petitioners on the hook and this joint sponsor on the hook to financially support this new immigrant to the U S.
0: Yeah. And a lot of people don't understand the significance of this affidavit support, mm-hmm. but it's important that you do, especially if you're a joint sponsor. Yeah.
1: You and know, the obligation's the same for the joint sponsor. It's the same timeline. So you got to be aware of that.
0: And I just had a couple that it was a, Cross border couple, Canadian American. And um, we helped with the initial green card. And when the marriage is less than two years, you actually receive what's called a conditional green card that's only valid for two years. And in that two year time period, they'd gotten a divorce. And the parents were the joint sponsor. Oh, wow. And they were not happy when they found out that the marriage ended. Well, that they were still on the hook, even through divorce. And they wanted to, you know, that kick the husband or ex out. They didn't want it to be on the hook financially. They wanted to know what they could do to terminate this. Yeah, there's no and
1: terminating it.
0: I had to be the, you know, bearer of bad news that, hey, this is, you're on the hook. Divorce doesn't end this. Unless he leaves the United States, which he does not have to, uh, he can stay. Then you're on the hook. Um, they yeah. were not happy to find that out. Um, The other, another thing that you file along with these applications is um, work authorization as well as travel authorization. And this is a key point to consider because these applications can take a long time to process Uh, depending on your processing location you had one in San Diego. What was the what was the time away oh, in San Diego? Oh, it's still not adjudicated. Still well, not.
1: That couple moved too, so they prolonged the timeline by changing. <laughs> you can shoot the yourself forum. in the foot by doing stuff <laughs> like that, right? Yeah, they moved from I think from Arizona to San Diego, and they they would Went have been from a,
0: one, one long time to even yeah, longer. And they, time.
1: but they would have been approved by now if they hadn't moved because the timelines where they were are still shorter than what it was in San Diego. But they're still waiting for their green card. Um, yeah, that that. Couples. It's been over two years, right? <laughs> it has been, yeah, definitely. Yeah. They whereas I,
0: if you file here in Buffalo, it could be two. To, we had cases seen two in months, but two months, yeah. you know, on average, about six months in Buffalo. So it yeah. depends on where you're filing. It can be a matter of months or years.
1: And the reason it's so hard for people is because once you file an adjustment of status application, if you're here as a visitor or on a TN or in some other non-immigrant status, that doesn't allow for what's called dual intent, meaning that you don't have You have the intention, dual intent means you have the intention to live in the United States, but you can also hold the intention to be temporarily in the United States. You can hold a temporary status at the same time as applying for permanent status. TNs, that's not allowed. Visitors, that's not allowed either. You can only have one intention, which is temporary. So when you apply for adjustment of status, you essentially are stuck in the United States until you get authorization from the government to leave the U.S., Um, no one's going to stop you from leaving. So if you were to drive across the border, there's nobody standing in your way, but to come back in, uh, would be a major issue. Um,
0: you abandon your application and
1: you've abandoned your application. Start all over. So we, all that money and all that time and effort.
0: I just had a client do this. They, they were married, they filed for their adjustment and then the husband calls one day and you know, we clearly advise don't travel, don't leave the U S um, she said she had an emergency to go. I think go visit a relative in in Canada, and he says, "Okay, what do we do to get her back?" I'm like, "Well, now that in her interview was only, a, her oh interview was gosh. only a few weeks away too, which was the crazy thing. She got scheduled for her adjustment interview. She would have just stuck around for another month." She would have had her green card. Well, what happened? Well, she abandoned that adjustment application. Then she was in Canada. And then she had to wait for a consular interview in Montreal, which she finally got a year later. So it prolonged her case by more than a year because she traveled. And she wasn't able to come back in um, because she had already declared her intent to stay here permanently permanently. And you can't do that as a visitor. And she had already filed that adjustment. So it's
1: too bad she didn't call you before. There are ways to do that. I mean, if you have an emergency, you could file for emergency advance parole. And, and it, it turns take out there a few wasn't weeks. a true emergency. But oh wow! That's another <laughs> well, I had a client that did have a true emergency, and she ended up going into her local field office um, and made an application for advance parole. Yep. Um, and she was approved for it, and she got to travel back to Canada to um, be to see be with her ailing mother. Um, while she was passing um, while her immigration case was processing here, um and she was admitted to the readmitted to the United States after that time um, without an issue because yep. she went through the proper means to get emergency advance parole.
0: And they will grant that for humanitarian mm-hmm. reasons. Uh, but because you just want to go visit your sister or whatever it might yeah. be in, in Canada that you haven't seen in a few months, that's not going to happen And fly. it's
1: really hard for Canadians because we're so close. Like you said, travel. we can see Canada right here. It's so easy to go back home. Um, so you really have to be committed if you're going to start this relationship or not the relationship, but start this process um, to not traveling back to Canada and have your family come visit you um, while you're going through this process
0: it's funny. And it undoubtedly, every time, so I talk to Canadians that come here, you know, they're coming on a TN visa, and we prepare them for that application process. And I always ask, have you ever worked or lived in the U.S. before? Because that's a question to ask you at the port when you're, mm-hmm. when you're applying. And I had a client last week say, no. And I said, what? I said, you're Canadian? <laughs> She's like, yeah. I was like, you've never... You traveled to the United or- States oh. before? You've never visited? <laughs> I can understand you haven't right. worked in the U.S. She's like, "Oh, I thought you just meant working." Yeah, she's like, "Oh no, I visited." It is so common, and for right. ha- to have somebody Canadians. to say no, I'm like, it it, it boggles my mind. This because Canadians there's very few Cana- travel.
1: Well, they love to travel, and the U.S. is so close and such yeah. a nice destination, and you rarely meet a Canadian that wants to live permanently in the U S or come here to work that hasn't been here already, at least a visit once, you know,
0: very common. Um, so that is a major consideration is, and travel, yeah, is travel, but also work. Can you go? So if you're here and let's say you entered as a visitor, you could be without authorization to work, right now they're they've sped it up so we were seeing a work authorization come in like we three have, months Yeah, but not travel but not travel mm-hmm. travel sometimes you don't even get it sometimes you get your green card before you get travel um but work authorization you have a good chunk of you know three to six months depending on your situation where you may not be able to work or travel yeah so you could be stuck in your house you know for a long period of time without, without a financial means yeah. yeah and the ability to travel so it's something you really need to take into consideration uh you need to be able to sit tight uh now there are exceptions if like you said depending on the visa you're on for example if you're on an h1b visa or an l1 visa mm-hmm. you can travel yep. while you have a pending adjustment
1: because those are dual intent exactly yep.
0: but if you're on a tn or if you're on a visitor visa, which is mm-hmm. probably the most that we see out of anything, is a Canadian, yeah. just visa exempt Canadian who's mm-hmm. seeking adjustment. You cannot travel. You cannot travel right. until you get prior authorization, um, and it can take some time. So you need to you need to have that in the back of your mind. If you're adjusting status here in the U.S., there's going to be a long time where you can't travel That's, or work.
1: But you know what? The way I explain it to my clients is it's a hard pill to swallow. But at the same time, would you rather you you can choose to be separated from your significant other for two years, possibly two years going through the consular process where you're just able to visit and can't start your life in the U.S. Or would you rather be together for a year while you're going through this process? Um, And, and, you know, it's what every family has a different perspective on it. but. Those Some really people have two two to work and they can't think go about without it. work, right? Yeah. Some people
0: have to travel. Sure. Maybe it is for work or whatever it might yep. be. And they don't have that and they have to do.
1: Or they've been living a cross-border life, you know, for maybe years while they've been separated. And they're just, yeah. just going to continue on doing that and choose to process the consulate. Yeah, we see that
0: often mm. as well. And, that, and that's the other option that we're not discussing today, and that's if you do it in Canada, if you finalize this process in Canada, that's called consular processing, mm-hmm. and you process in the, and at the consulate in Montreal. They do all of these immigrant visa cases in Montreal.
1: So Right, so if you need to travel, if you need to work, that's, that's the better option for you. But if you can sit tight and um, be unemployed for a little while, then adjustment of status is Much faster, too. Yeah. And
0: that's typically what the discussion that I have with individuals who are trying to make this decision. That's the first discussion Me I have. Me, too. Is, I think that's well, the most important thing consider. Well, do you need to travel to do you need to work? Yeah. Oh, no, I don't need to. So you could come to the U.S. and sit here for a year. It doesn't matter? Oh, yeah, I could do that. Well, okay. Adjustment might be right for you. Right. <laughs> oh, no, I can't go. Oh, no, I have to travel. Oh, I have to work. Well, then you, you're going to be stuck with consular processing if that's the case.
1: Which is still a good. I mean, it's still a good viable you'll option. Your, we have people yeah, getting approved get your all the time for that. Card. Yeah, it
0: just takes a little longer.
1: Yeah, you gotta, you know, be separated.
0: In some cases, yes. Um, so those are those are some those are the, typically the the two biggest factors that people consider when determining whether they want to adjust. And then another factor is intent. So when you enter the United States, and this is a big one that, that a lot of people don't understand. Uh, When you enter the United States, as a visa-exempt Canadian, you're entering as a visitor, and they're admitting you in that status to the United States. And as a visitor, your intent at the time, and this is important, at the time of entry must be non-immigrant or temporary in nature. Your intent to come to the United States when you're coming in must be to return to Canada. It should not be to stay here permanently in the United States. If you do that, you can you would be in violation of your status and your intent. We've had calls like that where
1: people got some bad legal advice, or they just didn't get any legal advice at all, and they showed up at the border and said, "Hey, I'm." And they said, "What's the purpose of your trip?" And they said, "Oh, I'm moving to the United States. Me and my husband are going to come live here now."
0: Law firm writes them a letter.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, tells them,
0: "Hey, just carry this letter. You're fine."
1: Yeah, and. You don't want to do that. So, no, you, when you're good. coming in as a visitor, um, you need to really have the intention to return back to Canada.
0: And the other part of this intent conversation is that intent changes and it changes all the time. So, your intent can change in the future. Yeah, especially after you've entered the US, during
1: COVID, it changed a lot. Oh, a people lot of would people would be here as visitors and they'd say, listen, if I go back home, I'm not going to see my spouse for who knows how long because the border and all these issues. So, we're going to file.
0: Yeah. And so they say, yep, I've changed my mind. Mm -hmm. I was going to go back uh, to Canada. Now I'm not. I want to stay. I'm going to file for adjustment. And there are timing considerations there, too, that we're not necessarily going to get into in this call or in this uh, conversation. But there are timing considerations, too, uh, that you need to be aware of if you've entered as a visitor. It can be done, though, and that's the most important thing. If you enter as a Canadian visitor or if you're here on a TN visa, even though these are non-immigrant visas, you can go to a green card, either through employment or through family sponsorship, mm-hmm. as long as it's done correctly and you, you consider all the timing considerations involved in it. Uh, but intent is a big factor. Sure. And people look past it, and they may say something at the border. And remember, conversations at the border, at the consulate, they're often recorded. And they're annotated somewhere. Yeah. So you say something at the border and then you contradict it in your adjustment interview, you could be in trouble right. for and fraud. And the
1: hard part is with when it comes up at the adjustment interview, you're literally at the last step in the process. So you have filed everything, you've paid everything, you've waited all this time. And then you go to that final step, that interview, and the officer um, asks you a, a significant question, which you may not may you may know or you may not know as, sig- as significant as it is and you answer incorrectly what they deem to be incorrectly and they can make a determination that your intention upon entering you know violated the terms of your non-immigrant status and therefore you were inadmissible at the time you entered and they could deny your green card
0: and they like to call that fraud because yeah. you said one thing and did another you lied upon on right. entry and right. Yeah, so be you very knew, mindful. You knew your intent factor. was to get a green card all along and you should not have entered on a visitor visa to do that. Correct. So in those cases, it's strongly advised, to, you know, use a competent attorney to help you with that process to make sure you do it correctly because it, it is very easy to make a mistake uh, in that process if mm-hmm. you don't understand how the law works. So after you, after You file these applications. You file for adjustment of status, um, and you're filing for your work and travel authorization. What happens is U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services is going to issue what's called a receipt, and the receipt is confirmation that they have your case, and and it's going to be adjudicated. They're going to be reviewing your case. And everything you file has a receipt. USCIS loves mail. So you're going <laughs> to get an I-130 receipt, I-45 receipt, a receipt for your work, a receipt for your travel. All of these are going to have receipts. Right. Confirming. And they're all going to have their own little case number. They're
1: attached gonna, to it. Do they come in separate envelopes or are they going to come all together? Separate right. envelopes. Right. So I think that USCIS is financially supporting the U.S. Postal Service, frankly, but. Yeah. There <laughs> might be some
0: political <laughs> agenda there. Yeah um could you imagine us yes delivering mail it would probably put the u.s postal service out of business
1: well that's the amazing thing because the canadian immigration i i find it's you know they're relying heavily on email now it's all electronic yeah, yeah. but u.s immigration we still do everything by snail mail
0: and which is important too though because you know that these notices are coming by mail you better keep your address current um and use it an, and a an address that you're going to be getting mail at mm-hmm. and that you can respond to notices and stuff from USCIS. And that's kids.
1: another benefit to having a competent immigration attorney. They'll be able to get copies of all your notices. Yeah, your so they're going to keep you, they are going to keep on top of you with these steps. So you're even if you're not home or you're traveling or you, you're not get consistent in checking your mail or getting your mail, your attorney is going to be able to get copies of those and, and keep you on track.
0: Yep. And, um, if you miss, and then the next thing you're going to get receipt notice is typically the next thing you're going to get uh, typically a month or so after you get your re- initial re- confirmation that you received your case is what's called biometrics. Um, and this is an important step. All the steps are important. <laughs> now, if you miss a biometrics appointment, guess what happens? Good luck. Your case is automatically denied. You, if you miss it, and you have not properly notified USCIS that you need to postpone that in that biometrics for for a valid reason, um, then your case is automatically denied.
1: Yeah, because biometrics is an in person interview, not necessarily an interview, but it's where you show up in person to give your fingerprints. And you, they take a photo of you in order to run your background checks, to check out your your criminal background, to make sure that you're admissible to the United States um, and that you don't have any criminal background or history that would impede your ability to get a green card. So it's very, very important that you show up for that at the right time in the right place. Um, and if you can't, to notify them in advance.
0: And they have to approve the reschedule. So if you notify them in advance and then they didn't get back to you, that they rescheduled it, you better still show up because if they don't reschedule it uh, and you miss it, you will be denied. Uh, and we've unfortunately seen this happen a few times mm-hmm. uh, recently. Where individuals have ignored those notices in their
1: cases, yeah, were and denied. I think they've gotten harder with those lately. I feel like before COVID, yeah, we were able to send people into walk in, yeah, or anywhere even, you want, yeah, even other field offices. Yeah. If they said, "Oh, I'm, you know, I'm not living there now; I'm living over here. Can I go to this field office?" Yes, yeah. you can, but not during COVID. They changed that rule, yeah. So they're not as lenient anymore, and it's very important that you honor all of these notices that you're getting and show up on time to the right place.
0: Yes. And another thing that goes along with that as well um, is a medical. Mm -hmm. Uh, So every immigrant to the United States has to perform a medical evaluation and make sure that you don't have any, you know, communicable diseases that are a threat to the population of the United States. Make sure you have all of your inoculations, they are up to date. One of the most recent ones that's on there is COVID is now required. Um, as part of that process, you can file that medical along with your initial application, mm-hmm. or you can do it later on. There's actually two times you can do it. And um, we typically don't include the middle medical up front. We include it later on. They will request it later and you can submit it and bring it to your, your interview with you. And that's because these medicals do have an expiration date. And with COVID, you know, a lot of the delays people's medicals expired. Right. So they'd have to, get another one Uh, so you're going to go through a background check with the biometrics appointment make sure you attend it and you're also going to have to do a A medical medical exam yeah and not anybody can do this medical you can't just have your uh, primary care physician fill this out for you and bring it to you they have what are called designated civil surgeons And only these civil surgeons can do these medicals. You have to have it done through them. They return it to you in a sealed envelope. Mm -hmm. They'll give you a copy as well for your records. But that sealed copy is what is delivered to USCIS, either with your application by mail or in person at your interview.
1: Yep. And this medical is not covered by your health insurance. So it's going to be something that you have to budget for and expense. pay out of pocket for um, personally. So it's if another. You haven't
0: been vac- if you haven't got all your vaccinations, you're going to pay for that too. I had a client too.
1: recently tell me that their medical exam with the vaccinations they needed to get cost them upwards of $700. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and so it's something you want to budget for as well during this process that's another reason we kind of wait to the end to tell people to get it because there's a lot of expenses right up front with the filing fees. And if you're using an attorney legal fees, sometimes it's nice to have a break from that before you have to pay for a medical exam as well.
0: Yeah, spread those costs out. Yeah. But it is an absolute requirement. Okay. You you have to get this medical done uh, for them to approve your case. And along the way, as USCIS is reviewing the materials you submitted and processing your case, they can issue a few different things. They can issue what's called a notice of intent to deny, Mm -hmm. uh, which means your case is very Uh deficient. (laughs) Um, Or they can issue what's called a request for evidence, which is simply a notice from USCIS saying, hey, we got your case. We need more. This or the other. Right. We
1: need more to make our decision.
0: And there are some common ones we see for for a request for evidence. I would say the most common NOID that I've seen is people will submit, just like we discussed in the beginning, they'll submit their application and it's a marriage case and they'll just submit it with their passports. And let's be clear here. We're seeing these
1: because people are calling us after they've submitted their case (laughs) on their own. It's not because we filed insufficiently. Um, Usually, people come for help. Yeah, they've tried this process on their own and they've run into a little bit of a roadblock and they want our assistance to help them get out of the hole
0: now. And we just, and I just responded to annoyed for a couple and they came to us, they filed on their own and literally the only things that were in this application. And this is, this is not a knock on them. They just don't understand the process. Right. Uh, We do it all the time. So for us, it's inconceivable that somebody would file (laughs) like this, but from a lay person that's filing, they think it's, that it's okay. But their application just had the forms. Yeah. (laughs) Then it had, Proof of citizenship for the U.S. citizen, birth certificates, and marriage certificate. That was it.
1: Yeah, acceptable maybe in the nineteen seventies, (laughs) but now that's not going to be enough.
0: They got annoyed. Yeah. Saying, uh, in other words, this is so deficient on its face that we can deny. We can just outright outright deny you right now. Respond to this right. So they had no bona fides. They did not have any of that evidence that we talk about that you need to prove your. To prove the relationship. It's a
1: pretty common mistake. I think people feel like their marriage certificate is enough. You know, unless you read the detailed instructions for the form, you wouldn't really know that off the top of your head. So
0: it is very common. Um, So annoyed. And the other is a request for evidence. So Mm -hmm. requests for evidence are actually not that uncommon. And USCIS, unfortunately, will issue them sometimes unnecessarily. Maybe they haven't reviewed the evidence early, but we'll see requests for evidence for stuff that we've already submitted sometimes.
1: Seen a lot lately, and this is even for ones that we did file for the financial information. So, even sometimes where you meet the financial requirement and you submit sufficient evidence to demonstrate that, they'll still send a request for evidence asking for a joint sponsor. Um, you know, I don't know what it is these days, but they want their comfort level up before they approve that. Or
0: they'll ask for a marriage certificate and it was included.
1: Yeah. And it's frustrating because people call us and they're like, Hey, you know, we, we sent in everything, um, you know, to prove this and our income is enough what's going on. And I, you know, sometimes the best thing to do is just get that joint Mm -hmm. sponsor, just send them what they want in order to move the case forward rather than try to argue with them that what we already sent is sufficient.
0: And then some of them are legitimate. And I think some common ones that I've seen over the years uh, where people have come for help is let's say you submit a marriage certificate, but you got married in a foreign country and in the in the marriage certificate's in a foreign language mm-hmm. and you did not include a um, translation. translation of yeah. that. that we'll get a request huh. for evidence. Yeah. Or... Mm-hmm. Maybe um, you are Canadian and you were issued a short form birth certificate and you never got a long form birth certificate. They'll request that long form birth certificate. That's another one we see often yeah. too, um, and and then just simple requests for maybe the document you submitted mm-hmm. was cut off. Oh yeah, it didn't it wasn't include a good the copy. entire document it or have it wasn't the certification legible
1: on it or something. Yeah. So so, that's a good reason to use an attorney is because we know what the documents are supposed to look like and, and we know the, which ones are acceptable exactly. and we'll tell you like, hey, you need a translation before we sub- submit it, saving you sometimes months of processing.
0: Or the short form is not sufficient. You need the long yeah. form, right? Yeah. Or that that religious ceremony that you did is not legal proof of marriage. Mm -hmm. We need to show where it was actually registered and we need the registration of that, you know, religious ceremony. So it depends. yeah. Yeah. So those are all things that, that USCIS can request, uh, information for so they call them requests for evidence so they're not the end of the world it, it's funny though we get the mail you get you you check the mail then these notices are typically w- on white paper or some of them on a, this light shade of green yeah but a request for evidence yellow yellow <laughs> pink like they're they're they a bright, the bright colored paper. piece of paper so you'll like know pay if attention you're to me one. right yeah <laughs> do not ignore um, and again going circling back Make sure you keep your address current because if this notice comes and you moved three months before and you don't see this notice, they could deny your case for failure to respond to this notice. Uh, So you could be out of luck. Uh, So make sure that address that you're using is current and you're checking your mail uh, often when you do this. And then the final step when you you go through this process is the in-person interview. And if this is based on marriage, it always culminates in an interview every every case you have to have that interview with USCIS.
1: and there like, has i think there has been movement towards um trying to eliminate that requirement because it's you know pretty onerous and it, in some cases it's not necessary Yeah, if it's
0: on its face this case is you know five inches thick of evidence and
1: they've got four kids together four kid, and they've yeah. been together for especially 15 those years ones, yeah. yeah you know there's really no need for an interview um, other than meeting the person face-to-face and verifying their identity, <laughs> I yeah. can't really see anything else. Maybe verifying the Because they do questions. waive
0: a lot of employment-based ones or yeah. for parents and children, they'll waive those. So there
1: has been movement towards, uh, you know, maybe not requiring the interview in but every right case. Now, yeah. right now, they do. Currently, every case is interviewed.
0: So what happens if you don't show up? Yeah, denied. Your case is denied. Um, what happens if you show up without your spouse? Your case could be denied. Although so, I did
1: have a case that I was waiting at patiently at the field office, and the client didn't show up, and I gave them a call while we were there, and, and they had totally forgotten. Someone had gotten sick in their house, and they couldn't make it, and they completely forgot about it. But we got it rescheduled because I was there. So yeah. well, yeah, because you had were an there. attorney, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, their case so you could showed have been up denied.
0: in their... in their in their stead, and yeah. then and you got it rescheduled. But mm-hmm. if you flat out just don't show up to that interview, they're going to deny your case. And if it's a marriage interview, your spouse should be with you. Oh yeah, that's what they're doing. They're verifying the legitimacy. Well, you get a notice situation. that tells
1: you everything you need to bring and who you need to bring with you. So yeah, read it.
0: Yeah, read it. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of people read. And what do you bring to that interview? And it says on the notice what to bring. Um, But the stuff that you've submitted by mail, typically you don't need to bring any duplicate evidence, uh, but you need to bring your originals. So biographic documents, so marriage certificates, birth certificates, naturalization certificates, passports, uh, they want to verify originals of that. And then any additional evidence that you didn't already submit. So maybe it's been a while since you filed your taxes and you have a new tax return. Or maybe you've had a child since you submitted your application. Or now, uh, and I call this gap evidence, maybe since you filed you have six more amounts of bank statements or rent statements or insurance statements. All of that evidence that you've accumulated since mm-hmm. you filed the application, they expect you to bring and to that interview and show it to them. To prove that, hey, I filed this a year ago or however many months ago, but we are still married. We're still in a relationship. Here's that evidence that we've accumulated since we filed it. And then sometimes the officer will ask for it. Sometimes they won't. If they do, then you have it. And you can give them that evidence to prove that you're still in a, a legitimate relationship. Yeah. Then at the end of that interview, all goes well. Typically, uh, here in Buffalo, you'll get your green card within a week. it's pretty fast Uh, and then you're good to go. You're, uh, you're a U U.S. permanent resident. So three things to consider if you're, if you're filing an adjustment application and we've covered these briefly. Um, but number one, take, make considerations for travel and work. And this, Mm -hmm. again, this is one of the,
1: in making your decision and how to proceed, really think through what the, what your, your family can handle as far as your work obligations and travel obligations for the foreseeable future, because it could be a while.
0: Cabin fever. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you could get you could have some severe cabin fever if you're stuck in your house during the winter and you can't travel <laughs> or work. Um, so that is a one of the top things to consider is um, whether or not you need to work or travel, and that's going to determine whether or not consular processing or adjustment of status makes sense for you. Mm-hmm. Um, second plan ahead. As we've discussed, this process can take two years. It could take a year. It could take several months. Uh, it depends on the processing with the U S government, but you need to plan ahead for this. You need to plan ahead. If you want to do it in the United States and adjust status and you need to rely on income, maybe you need to put some money away in savings that'll allow you to sit tight for a few months. Um, maybe you have a vacation. You should you maybe you want to postpone a vacation till later on, until after the process is done. Right, and um, I, I selling mean, homes, like there's a lot that goes into this. Yeah, but you, you got to gotta be
1: careful with that too, because if you think about the intent issue and the steps you're taking prior to coming to the United States, you really have to have that intention to yep. to be a visitor, to enter and to return to to your home country. So you should work with an attorney that you know is familiar with this process to make sure you're not taking the kind of steps that are going to impact you at your interview down the road.
0: Yep, and that's the third one: intent, mm-hmm. very important, and it, that might as well be the most important on the list. But it's one right. of the three, right? Yeah, that intent, uh, and again, and I, that, that planning intent—that's
1: right? a balance. So you got to work with an attorney that knows what they're doing.
0: Yeah, and really, all three of these go together. You know, consideration of travel work, you need to plan ahead. And what is your intent at the time of entry? Yeah. And bad planning can derail out.
1: your case. Because I had a, I had a client who um, was coming in as a visitor. She wasn't even intending to adjust status. They had already got an approved I-130 and they were going through consular processing. And she was coming to visit with her dog. Or her, her dog. No, it was her cats, actually. And <laughs> she had several cats with her. And the officer took the position that, you know, nobody travels with their cats unless they're moving there. So um, she was denied entry to the U.S., and she wasn't even intending to to emigrate, but um, right. she had a U.S. spouse. We were going through consular processing. She, had the she perceived was, intent, right? Right. It, they perceived it as intent, and they denied her as a visitor.
0: Yeah. Um, so, and we've covered some of these examples already before, but one of the one of the most common ones we see is people that have been in a long term relationship with a U.S. citizen. And they've come to a point in their life where they want to retire. And you know, I'll say Florida because that seems like everyone wants to move to Florida. Or um, Texas. Or Texas. Yeah. Or Arizona. <laughs> you know, one of those warm states. And they just one out of uh, Canada and they're going to retire and move to the United States. We see, we see those cases on a regular basis. Um, so make sure you plan ahead if that is in the cards and that's what you want to do. It's not something you can just do overnight. And, you know, I'll ask people that question. Well, how, when do you plan on coming to the U.S.? And they say, oh, I want to, we want to come down hopefully next month. Eh, not going to happen. You know, you're not going to be able to get a green card in a month at least. And they need to make sure that they consider things that we talked about. Um, Do you need to travel? Do you need to work? Uh, And plan ahead for that. So we see a lot of that. People retiring or maybe uh, making a major career change and they're selling a home and moving to the U.S. to take mm-hmm. a, a job in the U.S. These things, you need to make sure that you plan ahead and you consider this. Uh, if you have a m- marriage in the future, right, you're engaged. Um, well, how is that going to play out once you get married? Are you going to have a cross-border relationship? Is one gonna, person going to move to the United States? Or is one person going to move to Canada? Are you going to consular process? Are you going to adjust? Uh, definitely need to consider that. Um, so hopefully this conversation was able to give you a, a good idea of, of the adjustment of status process, moving to the United States and filing for a green card to stay here permanently. Uh, if you haven't already, uh, go ahead and hit the uh, subscribe button so that you can hear, you know, upcoming episodes of our podcast. We also have a YouTube channel out there with some great videos. Uh, they answer a lot of questions, and our website is a great resource as well. There, we have regular posts uh, that address common immigration questions come out frequently on our website as well, where you can go and you can subscribe to those we- weekly updates and get more information. Thank you for tuning in today, and have a great day.